We started a, a short teaching series last week called The Tough Sayings of Jesus and uh, found some more. And, and uh, we're just not shying away from some of the really tough things that Jesus said. We're not trying to present a sanitized, politically correct, easygoing, easy listening Jesus. We want to look at Jesus, everything that he said, exactly as he said it, even the things that are offensive to me, even the things that are controversial, even the things that seem to fly directly in the face of what our culture says and even what I believe to be true about me. Because when you are willing to do that, your life can be transformed. But you will never be transformed by a God who simply agrees with everything you already believe to be true. You're only transformed by a God who is the way exactly that he is, who is willing out of his love for you and for me, as a good parent would do, and look into the eyes of us, his sons and his daughters, and say, what you're doing here is not right, and you need to stop, and you need to change, and here's how, and here's why. So last week, we looked at the really tough saying of Jesus when he talked about the differentiation between authentic Christians and counterfeit Christians. Last week, we looked at the difference between someone who Jesus says will come to me seeking access for heaven, who will get in, and someone who comes seeking access to heaven, who I will say, depart from me, I I never knew you. Really tough passage. This week... We're going to dig into yet another passage where Jesus says, if you're really going to be my disciple and you want to get into heaven, this condition must be the case. So let's look at it. We'll get as far into this as we can this week. I don't want to shy away from it. I will prepare you. These are hard things to preach and they're hard things to hear. But at Echo, we believe in solid teaching from the Bible. We believe in being and making disciples. And so we're not after the road of least resistance in our lives. We're not looking for what makes us comfortable. We are in a relentless pursuit of the truth. Because it's really only understanding, accepting, receiving the truth that we find freedom in it. And so today, I hope that if you came in here this morning carrying something that's making you feel like you're sinking, that this morning you can hear the truth and you can find freedom for it. So let's read. We'll be in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, first book in the New Testament. One of the accounts of Jesus' life as recorded by Matthew, chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Up to seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. So there's a, you need to understand, there's, there's a quick break here in the narrative. Peter asks Jesus a question, Jesus gives him an answer, and then he kind of expands on his answer by telling a parable, a story. And here's the story he tells to further explain his answer to Peter. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before the master and begged, please be patient with me. Don't sell me. I'd rather try and repay it. Give me more time and I will pay it all. 
Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him, and he forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down now before him and begged him for a little more time. Please be patient with me and I'll pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. Well, when some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went right back to the king and they gave him a report. They told him everything that had happened. So then the king called the man in that he had forgiven earlier and said, essentially he's saying, my position has now changed. He said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just like I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. Let me ask you a question. He gets sent to prison to be tortured until... How are you going to repay a debt when your full-time job is being tortured in prison? That's the thought. Verse 35 is the sobering verse where Jesus steps back out of the story and tells us why he tells us. What's the point, Jesus? Here's the point. That's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Because we're short on time, let me just cut to the chase. What Jesus is saying in so many words is that your doctrine can be spot on. You can be passionate about your faith. You can lift your hands during worship. You can cry. You can be emotionally involved and have an emotionally satisfying faith. You can even be involved in doing ministry and volunteering at your church and giving away water and doing medical missions trips and helping poor people and helping sick people and helping the underprivileged and the underserved and yet refuse to forgive somebody of their offenses against you and be kept out of heaven. That's what he's saying to us. So last week we started wrestling with some of the tough statements of Jesus and this week we find another one. What's the big idea, Pastor? What's the big thing you're trying to drive home this morning? It's in your notes. Let me share it with you. The big idea is this. No true disciple chooses to be unforgiving is what Jesus says. He says there's a differentiation between a true disciple and a counterfeit disciple. He says no true disciple of mine chooses to be unforgiving towards other people. An authentic disciple of Jesus Christ demonstrates a willingness to extend unlimited forgiveness when they've been mistreated. Last week, we differentiated, Jesus differentiated between true disciples and counterfeit disciples. He said there's two things that differentiate us. One is the issue of lordship, the other is the issue of grace. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, you're a true disciple when you've surrendered your will to the Lord. When you do exactly as God asks you to do, will we be perfect in this? No, but you can tell who your Lord is when you're corrected. When I mess up, when I do wrong, when someone or my circumstances confronts me and says, you were wrong in this area, am I quick to repent and respond and amend my life? Or do I, in those moments, defend myself and point to everything that's right about me? The people that point to everything that's right about them are essentially saying, I don't want lordship. I want a merit-based faith. 
I want to be closer or farther away from God based on what I do, how I think my performance, how moral I am, how much I give, whatever those things are, that's what I want. Jesus says that doesn't work. So the first issue is lordship. Only those who do the will of the Father are authentic disciples. The second thing is the issue of grace. People who come to Jesus and say, I recognize if I'm going to be saved and if I'm going to get to heaven, it is only through Christ and through Christ alone. It has nothing to do with anything that I've built for myself. It is Jesus only, not Jesus and my behaviors, not Jesus and my works, not Jesus and my ministry, not Jesus and my doctrine, not Jesus and my mission strips. It's just Jesus. And you can tell where you're at in that situation when life gets bumpy. Because if you're the type of person when life gets bumpy, if you start saying, I have worked so hard for Jesus in vain. Now my basement has water in it. Now my marriage is on the rocks. Now my job's not so nice. Now my finances are a mess. And I've done all these things for Jesus, and I guess it's not really panning out. You see, that is a works-based faith. That's someone who says... The accumulated list of my resume determines how close I am to God or how far away from God that I am. Jesus says, that's not it either. It's only the person who builds his house on the rock, not the person who builds his house on sand. So last week we said the two differentiators, all true disciples make Jesus their Lord, they do his will. All true disciples understand and receive his grace. And now you're thinking, Pastor, are you suggesting a third one? No, really the issue of forgiveness falls neatly under both those categories. I forgive because Jesus is my Lord. Because sometimes I don't want to forgive people because I don't think they deserve it. I'm not ready to be done with it. I'm not over it yet. I don't think that they've asked for it. I don't think that they're forgivable. I don't want to reconcile with them. I give all these excuses of why I don't want to forgive. But at the end of the day, if Jesus is my Lord and he says, you forgive others like I forgave you, then it's not really an issue of whether I want to or not. It's an issue of surrendering to his will and working through that process, whether it's easy or difficult for me. It's also an issue of grace. Because when you recognize how much grace you've been given already, it makes it much easier to give a little bit of grace to somebody else. When you're unwilling to forgive because you don't think people do deserve it, you've forgotten what you've been forgiven of. Jesus says it this way. He who forgives little loves little. He who has forgiven much loves much. So let's dig into this this morning. What is forgiveness? When do I need it? And why should I listen to you for the next 15 minutes? Let me tackle a few of those things. Forgiveness is necessary for you and for me anytime you've been offended. How many of you have ever been offended? Okay, I've probably done it to you myself. I've probably offended all of you at one point or another. Please forgive me. (laughs) Forgiveness is necessary anytime I've been offended, anytime I've been mistreated, anytime I'm treated unfairly. It happens to you all the time. Now, some of us get too easily offended. But anytime you've been offended, anytime you've been mistreated, anytime you've been treated unfairly, forgiveness becomes necessary. There are two basic causes for offense. One is you have been genuinely mistreated. Someone did you wrong. There's another time you get offended. It's when you think you've been mistreated, but you got bad information. Or you got accurate information and you misinterpreted it. Someone says something to you and you assume, well, they must have been up all night planning to say this to me and how dare they say it. And they just said something they weren't even thinking. Okay. Regardless, if you have been genuinely offended, what happens is when you're offended, a debt is created. Why do you think people say, like I remember watching the old cartoons and somebody gets something bad done to them or a prank happens to them or, you know, the, someone throws a bucket of water on them and they clench their fist and say, they'll pay for this. 
Anytime you get offended or you get hurt or you're mistreated, you need to understand what happens. A debt is created. They owe you something. And what usually happens is we take up the role of the bill collector. We decide how much they owe us and how they're going to repay it and when they're going to repay it, or we pay them back. And what happens is when you get into this cycle, you never really get even. It just goes back and forth and back and forth. Forgiveness is actually an accounting term. Forgiveness, and you have to grab this. Forgiveness was actually an accounting term, a mathematical term. It means to cancel a debt completely. It's not pretending that there's no bill. It's tearing up the invoice. Do you understand what I'm saying to you this morning? It's not saying what was done to you was okay. Let's forget about it and pretend like it never happened. No, a thousand times no. That's not what forgiveness is. How will you ever learn if you're never held accountable for the things you've done wrong? Forgiveness is not pretending that something didn't happen. Forgiveness is also not necessarily reconciling and rebuilding a relationship. Forgiveness takes one. Reconciliation takes two. Forgiveness is tearing up the invoice and canceling it. So Jesus tells a story. He tells this parable to Peter in response to the question that Peter asked Jesus. Peter says, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Here's what he's asking. If Stuart comes and he hits me on the head with a hammer. It's the first thing that came to my mind. I don't know. Hopefully that doesn't happen. Hopefully my reflexes are such that I would see the hammer coming and move. Stuart comes, hits me on a hammer. He says, you know, Pastor, I'm sorry. I was just really upset with you about that message last week. And this was, I, I, I forgive you. Then he comes in the next day and he hits me on the head with a hammer again. Pastor, I'm sorry. I'm, just, I'm having this hammer problem and I just I've got this real habit-forming thing in my life. I just, it's okay. I, I, for, I forgive you. Let's not see that happen again. He comes to me a third time, hits me on the head with a hammer. Pastor, again, I'm sorry. You know, I've been praying about this, but I got up this morning. And, you know, there on, my, there on my nightstand was the hammer, and I thought maybe it was God speaking to me. And so I picked up the hammer, and I came, and I just I saw your head, and it was very shiny in the sun, and I just hit it again. <laughs> this is what Peter's talking about. Peter's saying, if a person keeps doing the same thing to me over and over and over and over again, surely God does not want me to be a doormat. At what point is enough enough? He's, and what you have to understand that I didn't understand until actually Pastor Stewart didn't hit, send me a hammer. He sent me some research he had done on this passage. And at this point in his life, Peter was like a lot of the other Jews who had, had been educated by the priests. They took a passage from Amos that pretty much they interpreted it to say that God only forgives a recurring sin three times. And so Peter is thinking in the back of his mind, well, even the Old Testament kind of teaches that after the third time, we don't have to forgive anymore. So he goes to Jesus and say, how many times should I really forgive? How about seven times? So Peter's actually thinking, he's suggesting way above and beyond what the Bible's already expecting him to say. And here's what Jesus says. No, not just seven times, 70 times seven. In other words, he's just just taking it to infinity. He's just saying, listen, there's no limit on how many times you forgive someone when they do something against you. Now, I have to tell you, when I, this is one of the parts of the Bible, if I were allowed to right click and delete some of it, this would be part that I would do. I don't like it. I don't know how theologically correct this is to say, but I don't even know if I want to, I don't know that I want to agree with it. Just being honest. 
But it doesn't really matter what I think. I don't decide who God is and what his word is. I don't look at the Bible through my experience. The Bible comes into my life and shapes my experience. The Bible is my source of ultimate truth. And whether I agree with it or not, the idea is I submit myself to and I let God come in and change my heart. My flesh doesn't like everything that it reads. But I need God's help. Because I don't know that I want to enter into a system where there's a limit on forgiveness. Because guess what? Then I have to go into that same system. And then I have no relationship with God because I blew my three free ones or my 490 ones or whatever probably by the age of five. Jesus is saying, no, it's limitless forgiveness. And I know what you're thinking. How is that fair? (laughs) It's not. Do you want fairness or do you want grace? What do you want? Fairness is where everybody gets what they deserve. Everybody, including you and me. What do we deserve? Death for every sin. How many lives would you have to produce to forgive all of your sins if there was a death penalty attached to every one? You would have racked up an enormous debt that you don't have the possibility of paying even if you went to God and said, give me some more time, I want to repay it. You have to hope that this system allows for debt forgiveness rather than debt repayment because you and I are intrinsically impossibly not fit to repay the massive debt that we've racked up to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So here's the story he tells. He says there's three characters in this story. We'll probably get as far as explaining the parable this week. We'll unpack the rest of it next week. And that's actually kind of a relief because the next passage we were going to tackle is the one where Jesus says, if you don't hate everyone else by comparison more than me, you're not worthy of me. And I was really scared of preaching that one. So maybe I get a couple more weeks on that one. One of the things that Pastor Stewart has shared with us when he's taught on the parables is that any time that there's a parable, one of the principles that we use is we look at each character in the story and understand that Jesus included each character in the story to teach us a lesson. So there's three main characters in the story. You've got the king, you've got the unmerciful servant, and then you've got the other servant, the second servant. Here's who they stand for. The king stands for Jesus. The unmerciful servant, the guy who first got forgiven a lot and then went and choked the other guy, That stands for you and me. That's where we put ourselves in the story. That's who he wanted us to identify with personally. Then the second servant could be anybody. Anybody in life. Person sitting next to you. Person who will ride in the car home with you. Person you'll run into this week. Person you work with. Could be anybody. So the king represents Jesus. The unmerciful servant represents you and me. The second servant could be anyone. The unmerciful servant represents Someone who has a relationship with the king who owes the king an unpayable debt. Now, in the New Living Translation, it says millions and millions of dollars. In the original language, it says he owed 75 talents. Talent was just a measurement of weight. But it's roughly equivalent to 375 tons. So millions and millions, while I appreciate the inexactness of it, if you dug down deep and really wanted to try and put a modern-day equivalent, and you just say, let's say... He owed, he owed the king 375 tons of, let's say, silver. Roughly speaking, $4.5 billion, to put it in today's terms. If it was gold, a whole lot more than that. Now, is Jesus trying to be exact? No. What he's trying to say is this guy owed the king so much. If you owed someone $4.5 billion, even if you wanted to repay it, do you realize how long that it would take? Even at a million dollars a year, a thousand millions equals one billion. So it would take, what, 4,500 years at a million dollars a year to pay that off on a servant's salary? Not even Dave Ramsey could get this guy out of this situation. 
I want to ask the question, what did he do to rack up such a big debt? I mean, look, I, I, I mean, if you, if, some of us understand, you take a credit card, doesn't take long for you to rack up some debt, but $4.5 billion? This dude has issues bigger than this. And the king, the Bible says, it came to a time where the king wanted to settle his accounts. And this servant comes and owes him an unpayable debt. He owed a debt he could not pay. And the king first chooses to imprison the merciful servant, to make him sell everything, to start being paid. I have news for you. If he sold everything that he had, he wasn't going to come up with $4.5 billion. He was going to end up in prison. And once you go to prison, how are you going to earn the money to pay it back? Do you understand the impossibility of the servant's situation? And he does something completely illogical. When presented with this massive debt that he has no repayment plan for, that he has no ability to make good on, that he doesn't even have enough money, if he wanted to pay it back, he couldn't. He says, if you just give me more time, I'll pay it all back. And the king looks at the situation, and he has two options. Because first of all, he has to kind of just discount what this guy is saying because he's just saying things that he has no ability to deliver on. How do you think God looks at us when we say things to him? We say things out of our mouth that sound right and sound good. We have no plan. We have no ability. We can't deliver on it. We're just like Peter. Jesus, I'll follow you to the end of the earth. He's like, you won't follow me to the end of the block. He's saying ridiculous things, but he's desperate. He does not argue his debt. He recognizes that he owes the king. The king has two choices. Throw him into prison until he can repay it. He ain't never going to get his money back. Sell all his stuff, not going to get his money back. He says he takes pity on him, and he forgave him. He takes the $4.5 billion invoice, tears it up, and says, it is no more. Go your way. If someone sent you a letter in the mail from your mortgage company saying, you know what, thanks to a generous donation from such and such and so and so, you no longer have a mortgage. Here's the deed to your house, free and clear. Would that be a good day? I don't know how to do a backflip. I would get on YouTube and I would work on it all the rest of the afternoon. Are you kidding me? I mean, someone buys me a coffee or something and I'm having a good day. I'm talking about you take the biggest, you know, those of you that haven't been with Dave Ramsey for a while, take the biggest debt that you have and just, it just disappears like that due to someone's donation. I'd be going around handing out lollipops. I would, I would be having, I don't know where that came up with. I, like, of all the things I could spontaneously think up to celebrate, I come up with going around and handing out lollipops. I live a lame life. Wouldn't it be a good day? The joy of that. And yet... The story pivots. All these parables have this twist to them. So this guy goes out. He leaves the collections office a free man. He's been given his whole life back. And he sees a colleague appear walking down the street who owes him a few thousand bucks. Not an insignificant sum, but by comparison. Some of the earlier translations, you do the same math, you come up with about $6,000-ish. So look, if you owe me six grand, I'm going to know where you are. And every time I see you, I'm going to remember it. That's just how I am. But he sees this person and he chokes them. And he says, I demand instant payment. And the person says, give me time. I'll pay it back. He says, no, I'm going to have you thrown in jail. Has the person thrown in jail? Completely different reaction. 
He's received grace. He's received forgiveness. He's received joy. He's been given his life back. Wouldn't you think that this person would then be able to look at other people who owe him and get into the flow of this extending of grace and forgiveness and just forgive the person? He doesn't just ask for payment. He demands it right then, and when he doesn't get what he wants, he hasn't thrown in prison. Well, TMZ reporters are there, and they see what goes on, and they run back to the king. And they say, you need to know what's going on. That guy you just forgave four and a half billion dollars just had this other guy thrown into prison who only owed him six grand. He choked him right on the street. King gets angry. I won't stand for this. My position has changed. Brings the unmerciful servant back. And he says, you evil. He makes a character assessment of this guy based on how he treated other people. I want you to know how God assesses us. You better understand how you're evaluated if you're going to stand on judgment day and give an account. You know what you will give an account for? Among other things, you will specifically give, the Bible says, you will give an account to God for how you treat people. And he will make an assessment on your heart and whether or not you really know him based largely upon, not exclusively upon, but largely upon how you treat other people people he says you're evil shouldn't you have considered what i just did for you and use that as enough motivation to extend that same treatment to someone else but since you didn't my position has changed now i'm throwing you into prison and you're going to be tortured until you can pay back the debt and as i suggested to you earlier what he's really saying is you're going there to be tortured indefinitely and then he adds on to the statement. He gets out of the story and he looks at Peter and anybody else who's listening says, and this is how my heavenly father will treat you if you refuse to forgive other people of their sins against you. We need to let this offend us. We need to let this challenge us. We need to wrestle with this. We need to not turn away from it. I will tell you, in many ways, forgiveness feels very, very, very unnatural. Because if a situation in your life this morning genuinely needs forgiveness, it means you have been genuinely mistreated and you've been hurt. And I don't want to sanitize that or devalue that for a moment. Every time I ever preach on forgiveness, I realize that just me preaching about it brings up in your mind things from your life that are very painful for you that you'd probably rather not think about. And I get no joy from doing that. But if these offenses are still coming to your mind and there's still an emotion, any type of emotion still attached to that, it means it's not been completely resolved in your heart yet. And if it's coming up as uncomfortable as it is, it's a sign that there's still place for God to help us extend forgiveness. Well, pastor, I don't know that I want that person to be forgiven. I don't know. Da, 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 da. Well, we'll talk about that next week, but here's what I say to you. At the end of the day, if you read the story, forgiveness is more about your heart than theirs. Do you see this? Here's what Jesus is saying. We need to learn to forgive as we've forgiven, not exclusively because but a lot of the reason is because it has to do with the condition of my heart. Whether theirs ever changes or not, they will answer for their heart. But I must answer for mine. And whether or not I feel that like they deserve it, whether there's change, whether there's been restitution, whether there's reconciliation, that's not the issue. The issue is they don't need to be in charge of my heart anymore. 
They don't get permission to derail my heart and my thoughts anymore. I will answer for what's in my heart. And if I'm withholding from them forgiveness, I'm essentially saying to God, I don't know you that well. And I have forgotten what I have been forgiven of. Let me give you the first point and we'll close. Let me apply just one of these things because I want to end on a little bit of an up note. What does Jesus want us to see here? There's three things and we'll, we'll unpack the rest of it next week. Number one, God's love for us has no limits. What do we learn from the king in this story? You know what we learn? His love for you and for me has no limits. If you will begin to scratch the surface of the love of God, how deep it is, how wide it is, you, will not, you cannot hardly help yourself but to fall deeper in love with him. If you can understand God's love, that in and of itself will transform your life. It'll transform the way you look at yourself. It'll transform the way you look at other people. What we see in the story, God's love has no limits. Here's a servant who has accrued a massive debt. A massive debt. He has taken and taken and taken and taken and taken from the king. Has never said he's sorry. Has never paid him back. Has just lived without even thinking about it. He's accrued a massive debt. And he goes to the king. And the king says, I will forgive all of it instantaneously. Thank God. Thank God. Some of us are afraid to admit. I don't know how deep into this one I can dig today. Some of us are really afraid to look at the true condition of our soul. We don't really think, if we're honest, that we need all that much forgiveness compared to the next guy. We see ourselves as pretty good moral people. We've known, some of us say, I've known Jesus all my life. I've been raised in church. And in the pride of our own hearts, though it might not ever come out of our lips, what we really think is that we're a cut above everybody else. We're not like the murderers and the pornographers and the rapists and the, you know, radical terrorists. We're not like them. They are somehow more sick in their soul. They are somehow more depraved. They're more morally bankrupt. They're more morally twisted. They're, but that is beneath me morally. Those egregious sins are far worse than the little tiny things that I occasionally dabble in. You don't recognize how deep God's love is until you swim in that part of the pool. And sometimes coming to that realization means you have to look deep inside and see how desperately you really do need a Savior. The person who understands God the closest, and if you want to understand God better, it's a terrifying journey that Paul went through and Martin Luther went through and a lot of other people are really looking in that even underneath all the good in me are other things driving that. The person who thinks, I'm so good, I'm so... What you're really saying is you're riddled with pride about your own goodness. And that pride is as disgusting of a sin to God as all the other ones. The only person who understands how deep and wide the love of God is is someone who recognizes how desperately they need a Savior. That they've thought about the cost, like we sung about this morning. They've thought about the cost of our sin hanging on the cross. And we see I am the one, not the next guy. I'm the one who owed an unpayable debt to the king. And without him, I would be drowning in a sea I could never get myself out of. But through him, I have everything. How deep and wide and great the love of God is for me. And Jesus says the basis of understanding how to forgive other people begins with your understanding of his love for you and how much we've been forgiven of. 
you will never be able to get any traction in the area of forgiveness until you understand the true condition of your soul without Christ and how generous he has been to you and to me. The story that I would illustrate that with as our worship team comes to close us is this. When I was in elementary school, I think I've told this story before. We'll have to come back to this message next week because there's a lot more that we need to talk about here. The reality of this is, I, I remember when I was in elementary school, I was in fifth grade, and I told you before, I was like five foot four by five foot seven. I was the biggest kid in my class, and uh, I couldn't swim. Dad didn't swim. Dad never took us to the pool. We never went to the ocean on vacations. Didn't know how to swim. But uh, when we would have pool parties at my, you know, my school, one time we had, a, we had a pool party after school at the Howard Johnson's, and we all got to go inside and have a swimming party there. And my job was to throw all the little kids in the pool. It wasn't really my job. I just made it my job. And so I would watch all the little scrawny kids that I was bigger than. I'd grab them by the shirt collar. I'd throw them in the pool. I had a lot of fun. Throw them in the pool. Throw them in the pool. They'd swim out. I'd throw them. And I'd go drag kids off the seat. Throw them in the pool. Well, finally, you start, doing, you start being the bully long enough and everybody else rallies against you. So like nine of the little kids come over. They pick me up like in the cartoon. They're lifting me over. They throw me in the pool. Into the eight-foot end. I didn't know how to swim. They threw me in the deep end of the pool. And I remember coming up out of, that, out of that water not knowing what I'm doing. And what do you do? You panic. I'm thrashing about, and I am taking on water, and I remember the feeling of beginning to drown. And as I'm panicking, 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 I see this arm reaching out from the side with a pole on the end of it saying, grab this, grab this, grab this. And I grab it, and I grabbed onto it, and, and, and they pulled me, you know, pulled me across the pole, got me in. And I look, and I'm getting the water out of my eyes, and I'm scared. And it's this little, like, 17-year-old lifeguard that was there. I hadn't even noticed her in the room before this happened. And she said, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm okay. I'm, are you scared? I said, yeah. She said, now quit throwing kids in the pool. You know what I said? Yes, ma'am. I didn't even realize how much I needed her until I was in that part of the pool. And I think there's just part of this walk with God that you do not, you will never cling to a Savior you don't think you need because you're good enough on your own. And God allows us sometimes to look into the brokenness of our own lives and say, no matter how hard I've tried to kick this attitude, kick this behavior, kick this thing, it just keeps coming back up. Sometimes you just feel unworthy. I don't know if you've questioned your own salvation even after being a Christian because you just say, as hard as I'm trying to live for God, I still see all my brokenness. That person will cling to Jesus because they know they need him and it's on him and nobody else. If you're going to learn to forgive people, you have to come to a place in your life where you say, I've jumped into the deep end of the pool of my own self and I see how desperately I would be lost without a lifeguard. I see how desperately that I would be lost, how limitless his love is for me. And I... I listened to a pastor this week. I, I listened to a podcast during the week. He was preaching on a pastor that had nothing to do with this sermon. And he said this. He said, I encourage you to take an hour during the week of complete silence. And I'm like, I have a three-year-old. Yeah, right. Like, it's going to happen. It's going to happen at one in the morning. To take an hour of the week in complete silence and just sit down and think about the lordship of Jesus and how much he loves you. And I think some good homework before we come back together next Sunday on Father's Day and finish this message would be for you and I to do some hard work of thinking about the depth of Jesus' love. How much does he really love you? And the second part of it is, how much do I really need him? Because if you can grab on to that, when we really come back next week, we talk about the how and the why of forgiveness, it's going to roll a lot more smoothly for you. So let's pray together this morning, then we're going to sing a song, and we're going to go out from here and spread the love of Jesus all over this community. Let's pray together this morning. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, 
I want you to know he stands ready to forgive your every debt right now. You don't have to beg him for it. You don't have to plead. He is ready because he loves you. And your debt is what is keeping you separated from him. It's muckying up the relationship. He wants to cancel that debt and give you freedom and life today. So if you need forgiveness, if you are ready for him to be your Lord, and rather than trying to earn his salvation, if you'll just receive his grace, I want to lead you in a prayer of confession today and salvation. It just would go something like this. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe everything the Bible says about you. I need you to be my Lord. I receive your grace. I confess that I have sinned repeatedly. I've fallen short of the standard you set. Please forgive me. Come into my life. Transform me. In your name I pray. Amen.